Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, verse this morning is from Revelations. Marianna's going to read it for us. This is from Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Hmm. The old order of things has passed away. All right, Dr. Jim, with Thank you for being with us again this week. Uh, I think you're going to finish up, uh, I guess, uh, lesson number three of the ones that you had originally planned to to uh, bring to us before COVID hit. Uh, so we look forward to that this morning. Uh, okay. I, I just, uh, again, want to thank everyone for the cards and the phone calls, the emails. Uh, Certainly appreciate that. We had a very good uh, trip over to Mississippi, uh, a good graveside service, and everybody uh, made it over and back uh, without any problems. So things w went well. It was good to, good to get over there and, and see, uh, see a lot of uh, my, uh, my relatives uh, are all uh, buried in that uh, Stonewall Cemetery a little Presbyterian church out in the country. So uh, don't forget to, on the My Neighbor's Pantry, uh, drop-offs now are on Monday from 12 to 2. So please drop off your donation during that time. On uh, prayer needs, especially we want to remember Malone and Charlotte. I know that I got... Uh, like probably you did an email last night, an update that uh, he was uh, hopefully coming home yesterday. yesterday. So please keep Charlotte mm -hmm. and Malone in your prayers. Also, Jim Adcock, Bill Griffin, Mary Kay Mills, mm -hmm. Don McClellan. Uh, he is uh, having surgery on Wednesday for melanoma. Pat Stamps and Ron Greer. Uh, of Peachtree Road UMC. Uh, he's been our speaker several times, and his wife, Karen, has passed away after a long battle with cancer. Continued prayers for Dick Anthony, the Coonies, Betty and Don Gay, Shirley May, Edna Smith, Stan and Virginia Thomas. Birthdays, Bob Carpenter, September the 9th, and also, I've got a, I got an email this week about Doris Westbrook. Doris will be celebrating her 100th birthday on September the 16th. Uh, I've asked Sue to send out a note to everyone. There's an address there. She is uh, at St Sanford Estates, and there's an address if you guys want to send Doris, a birthday card. I'm sure she'd be thrilled to get that. So uh, Sue will be sending out uh, the address where you can mail those cards. Anniversaries. Judy and Dal, 56 years. Happy anniversary. Okay. Also, uh, I saw in the Friday blast uh, some good news. Uh, RUMC is ready to reopen. September the 13th will be small groups will be able to begin meeting on the campus uh, in outside settings. And then on October the 4th, 
worship services will begin again on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. And also in Friday Blast, there was a note that on September the 15th, the church will launch a brand new website and branding message. So be on the lookout for that. Shaw, I will turn it over to you for our morning prayer. Okay, good morning, everybody. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you as a community of Christians. We have so many blessings to be thankful for. You have provided a wonderful world for us to thrive and grow. You have blessed us with a great local community, a worshiping church, and this great CUC Sunday School. We have brought specific concerns for our class members who need healing and support. Bless them with your loving hand and give them peace, particularly for Malone and his health issues. He has been a great leader to our church and our community. We have many concerns today, concerns for friends and family and for our church. We ask you to come to our aid as this terrible coronavirus spreads globally. We ask you to heal the sick and support and protect families and friends from being infected. Strengthen and encourage those in public health services and in the medical profession, caregivers, nurses, attendants, doctors, and all who commit themselves, often at their own risk, in caring for the sick. May they know your protection and peace. Inspire and give insight and hope to the researchers focused on developing a safe vaccine. Sustain all workers and business owners who have suffered the loss of jobs and businesses due to shutdowns, quarantines, closed borders, and other restrictions. Guide the leaders of all nations with the knowledge to halt the spread of COVID-19. Give them guidance to act with justice so that the whole world may know healing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Dr. Jim, you have the mic. Uh, Dr. Jim, if you'd uh, unmute. I didn't know I was muted. You got me now? Gotcha. Okay. Good morning, CUC. It's been six months, but we finally come to the end of this series based upon the question that was asked on that first Palm Sunday, who is this? And today we deal with the question, who is this? The answer, this is Jesus, the man of sorrows. But before we get into that, I want to add something to what I was saying last week. I forgot to, to say something important. I'll tell you about the plaque that my mother gave to me and we placed on my bedroom wall as a child. <clears throat> the plaque said, prayer changes things. And I shared with you the fact that I thought at that time, mostly God changed things around me, my circumstances. I came later to understand that God mostly wants to change me. But what I failed to share with you is a m marvelous image from St. Augustine. Augustine said, when a man in a boat throws a rope to a rock, his purpose is not to pull the rock to the boat, but to pull the boat to the rock. Thus, he says, the purpose of prayer is not to pull God to us, to make God do what we want him to do. No, the primary purpose of prayer is to pull us to God, to allow God to shape us into those persons that he's created us to be, so that we're able to reach that highest moment of prayer, where we're able to pray and demean not my will, but yours be done. Okay, who is this? Jesus, the man of sorrows. Fasten your seatbelt because we've got a lot to cover. In the book of Isaiah, we read the words, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. With his stripes, 
we are healed. Powerful words. And a lot of Christians who have not done the homework assume that those words are about Jesus because we made that connection. But there's more to the story than that. From the very beginning, Jews stood that they were a special group of people in covenant relations. That's what made them Jews. Beginning with Abraham, they had entered into a covenant with God, and the covenant was this. God promised, I will be your God. I will watch over you with steadfast, dependable love. And on their part, the Jews promised, we will be your people. We will follow you faithfully, and we will keep all your commandments. And their whole understanding was that as long as they were faithful to the covenant, by and large, good would happen. When they were not faithful to the covenant, bad things would happen. That was their understanding of who they were as a covenant people. Through the years, a lot of bad things did happen when they were not faithful to the covenant. Oh, by the way, there were two Isaiahs, at least. The first Isaiah prophesied before the exile. And I'll talk in a moment about the exile. Uh, he was warning them, among other things, that they were uh, had to be faithful or else bad things would happen. See, in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians. But people in the southern kingdom of Judah thought it could never happen to them. After all, they were Jerusalem. They had walls around their city. They had the temple. So nothing bad could happen to them. Still, their prophets warned them if they were not faithful to the covenant, bad things could happen. And surely enough, in 586 BC, the Babylonians came, conquered the people, tore down the walls of their city, destroyed the, the temple, and took the people into captivity. They were a clever people, those Babylonians, not only cruel, but clever. And what they did was a, a very terrible thing. They, they took all the brightest and best, all the young people who could be leaders, they took them into Babylon, into a land that they did not know, language they did not know. They left behind all their sorts of meaning, like the temple there in that land, and it was a terrible thing. That's what we call the exile. And the, the people there, uh, the captors tormented them, asked them to entertain them, uh, like the Nazis did in the concentration camps, asking the, the, the inmates there to, to entertain them by playing songs and by singing songs. It's not unlike the Westerns a lot of us grew up with, where the bad guy would uh, bullets at the feet of someone, making him dance, entertain us. That's what they did there in Babylon. Sing us some of the songs of Zion, they would say. Entertain us. The people were in sorrow. On the willows there, we hung up our heart. Our tormentors demanded of us, sing us some of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? It was terrible. Here's something important to remember. Our God is in the business of doing some of the best things at the worst time. You hear that? God is in the business of doing some of the best things in the worst time. So there they were, Jews in a foreign land, separated from the temple. So what did they do? They created the synagogue, a new way of being Jewish. And there in the synagogue, although they did not have access to the temple with its sacrifice, they created the synagogue. So now, study of Torah. The second good thing that happened there in the exile, because they were separated from the temple and they were studying Torah, they collected all the sacred writings of Israel. They brought them all together in one place in a way that had not been done before. And there in the exile came the formation of much of what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. There they were experiencing terrible things. But God had done some remarkable things in those terrible times. Uh, God had helped them to learn from their mistakes. They knew then that they had suffered because they had not been faithful. So they repented and they were determined to be faithful now. 
so that if they were able to return to Jerusalem, they would return, return as a new people, a redeemed people, able to be faithful now. And surely enough, over time, uh, the Assyrians were conquered uh, by the Persian. And Persia, the king of Persia, was King Cyrus, a good, benevolent man. He allowed the Jews who wanted to do so to go back to Jerusalem, and he helped them rebuild the walls of their, of their city, and he helped them rebuild their temple. Oh, and remember when they, had, when they began to consecrate the temple? After their return, they uh, they lit the sacred oil, thinking they only had enough for one day, but it burned for a number of days, and that became the beginning of what we call Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Of course, not everybody returned to Jerusalem. A lot of them stayed in Babylon, but now they had a new way of being Jewish, the synagogue. Then they moved to other nations, and that all became the Jewish dispersion. dispersion. Now, they believed that they had suffered because they had not been faithful to the covenant. And they believed that someone had suffered, and they called him the suffering servant. Biblical scholars argue about who was this servant. I've come to what I believe. I believe that the servant, Isaiah, second Isaiah, Isaiah writing from the exile, I believe that that Isaiah was, was writing about the people who had been taken in exile. Those people collectively were the suffering servant. And they discovered a remarkable thing, that either even people or nations can be redeemed and made new by the suffering of someone else. Suffering servant. Think of that servant as the people who were taken into exile, and by their suffering, they'd learn their lesson and they'd become a new people. So with that in mind, listen again to those words. He was wounded for our transgression. Those people who had been taken into exile were wounded. They were wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. With his stripes, we are healed. And they've been made new because of that suffering of the servant. Okay, fast forward, uh, they rebuild their, their temples, all that sort of thing. And then King Cyrus died. And they divided the Persian kingdom up among all the generals of Persia. And not all of them were as kind, as good-hearted as Cyrus. One of them was Antiochus IV, and he did bad things to the Jews. He outlawed everything Jewish could not possess a Torah. You could not circumcise your male children. Uh, He desecrated the temple, sacrificing a a pig on the altar there. Terrible things happened. But finally, the the Jews were fed up with all that, and so they had a rebellion, Maccabean rebellion. Judas Maccabeus went to the mountains and put a guerrilla army together and rebelled. And uh, it was that rebellion then, finally the Persians got tired of filling with those pesky Jews, and uh, they simply left. Oh, that was when they uh, uh, cleansed the temple and lit the candles at the beginning of Hanukkah, when they had to re-consecrate the temple after the abuses of Antiochus IV. Okay, for 100 years, the Jewish people were independent and free. They had a series of their own kings, and they ruled in freedom until 60 BC, when Pompey came through with his legions, conquered them again, and the Jewish people became slaves again under Roman rule. Now, that was when Jesus was born, hundreds of years after uh, the exile. Uh, he was born. And very early in his life, Jesus believed that God was calling him to do something special. And of course, he was taught the Jewish scriptures there in the synagogue in Nazareth and uh, at his mother's knee. Mothers were given the responsibility of religious training in Jewish families. So there, Jesus received word about the Jewish scriptures, and he learned them well. He learned about what had happened in the exile. He learned about the suffering servant. So Jesus felt God was calling him to do something special, but early on, he wasn't clear exactly 
the nature of that call. He felt that God was calling him to be the Messiah, but, but what kind of Messiah? So at age 30, he went to be baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Spirit came and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I will please. Listen to him. After that, Jesus went out to the wilderness to spend some time with God. And I believe what he wanted to do then was to decide, what kind of Messiah is it God's calling me? Now, the popular image of Messiah was to be like Dave, like David, who was the best of all the kings of Israel. And David was a warrior king. So they wanted a Messiah like David. That kind of leader is always popular, you know, one who raises an army, throws out the enemy, establishes a proud and popular nation. That's the kind of Messiah that people wanted. But Jesus refused to be that kind of Messiah. You know what I think? I think with the Spirit of God, Jesus decided he would embrace the image of that suffering servant. He would, he would win people, not by the power of the sword, but the power of a love that was so, so amazing that it was willing to suffer on behalf of those who are loved. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, rejected, bruised, wounded, that's the Messiah Jesus decided to be, but somehow through all of that, affecting a healing for us all. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus turned out to be, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Started very early in his life, even members of his own, his own family thought he was crazy. And after he preached in his hometown synagogue, they ran him out of town and almost killed him. Jesus experienced life exactly as we experience it. No exemptions, no special privileges. He got hungry, thirsty, tired, experienced pain, disappointment, grief. Remember when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Again and again, his disciples misunderstood him, disappointed him. The religious authorities were suspicious of him and plotted against him. And although thousands of people flocked to hear him preach, few of them became faithful followers. Finally, it became clear to him. By and rejected. how sad. All I wanted to do was to love them. All he wanted to do was to give them the fullest possible experience of life. The scripture says, sadly, he came to his own people. His own people refused. Toward the end of his life, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, looked out over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept. Remember those pathos words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? but you would not. Finally, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, Judas, forsaken by his disciples, convicted in a mock trial on trumped-up charges, ridiculed, spat upon, beaten, then crowned with a crown of thorns and nailed to a cross. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, I'll say. That means, however, that, that however difficult life is for you, however painful life is for you, Jesus knows. Jesus understands. He's been there. And yet, and yet there's something about that man on the cross. In spite of all the suffering and sorrow, there's something about that man on the cross that will not let us go. There's something there that reaches deep inside of us and pulls us closer and closer to that suffering Jesus. Look carefully at that cross and the resurrection which follows because that's the heart of the gospel. And I dare say the pivotal event in human history. All the pages of Scripture come together in dramatic focus there. At nowhere else in all the pages of Scripture do we see so clearly the great heart of God. All the gospel writers agree upon its importance, that they take great care and spend a lot of time telling the story. And when the first Christians begin to talk, 
they invariably told about the crucifixion and the resurrection. They knew, they understood that here is the heart of the gospel. Clearly, the Bible, at its central point, is there at the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. And, and here is the same kind, simply as I can tell it. God created you and me as a supreme act of creation. He created us in his image, gave us God-like characteristics, because he wanted creatures very much like himself, whom he could love, and who would respond to his love by loving him in return. But God, in his wisdom, understood that love is real only when it's given freely. So as soon as God created us, he set us free. Amazing. Free to turn our backs on the whole thing, if that's what we want. Free to live our lives as if God doesn't even exist, if that's what we decide. We are really, really and sadly, the record of what we've done with our freedom is not a very good one. From the very beginning, there's been that stubborn, rebellious streak in us. We wanted to go our own way, do our own thing. It seemed that if there's any way other than God's way available to us, that's the way we've tried. And that's why things have gone wrong. I've said over and over again in sermons and in books, the whole world has been designed to function God's center way. You live life according to that right order of things, and life is mostly good. If you live life on any other basis, things begin to go wrong. But read the biblical story. It's amazing. In spite of our rebellion and our waywardness, the remarkable thing is that God has never given up on us. He's never stopped loving us, caring about us. I tell you, if I were God, I would have done it for another long time ago. I would have given up, given up a long time ago. I would have destroyed the whole thing, started over. And in my new world, I wouldn't give you folks freedom. I know what you do with it. You can't be trusted with freedom. In my world, I would have things to be neat, orderly, dependable. I would have everything to do exactly as I please. Of course, that would only mean that I would settle for puppet toys, play things. Because sons and daughters with freedom are risky, dangerous. They disappoint you too often. They hurt you too much. But the remarkable thing is that in spite of the disappointment and hurt, God has never stopped loving, and he's never stopped reaching out to him. God keeps on keeping on. So throughout history, God has sent prophets and priests and messengers. He's tugged at our hearts by his spirit. Again and again, he's whispered into our hearts, I love you. You're mine. Don't, don't you know that? Won't you please come home to me where you belong? Uh, so many people misunderstand. In this lifelong game of hide and seek, the problem is not that God is hiding. We've got to find him. And I disagree with what I've heard from preachers for much, much of my life. So many preachers have talked about the problem being Satan, that we are held in bondage to Satan and God has to pay a ransom to get us free. And God has to pay Satan off. That sounds sort of wimpy to me. People have talked, preachers have talked about how, oh, God must be the problem. Something has to happen to make God want to love us, want to forgive us, want to claim us as his sons and daughters. So something has to happen. But, and I understand why some of the biblical writers talked about it the way they did. See, all the early Christians were Jews. And their whole understanding of the way you get close to God is by the sacrifice in the temple. So it was understandable. When they were trying to understand how to talk about what God had done for us in the crucifixion and resurrection, they thought about that sacrificial system. So it just became for them the sacrificial lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. I understand why they said that, but I didn't grow up with this sacrificial system, and so that has never rung true to me. See, I don't think something had to happen to convince God to love us, forgive us as his children. I don't think God was the problem. I'm the problem. The problem is I've run away. I've rebelled, and something had to happen to change me, to make me want to receive God's love and be the son 
that he's created me to be. That's the problem. And I believe that there at the cross, something there at the cross, there's God's best, most costly attempt, finally to get through to us. And that's why that image is so compelling. You see, we're made in such a way that we can't be called home by argument, threat, or punishment. Those things are not redemptive. The thing that finally gets through to us is the redemptive power of love that loves enough to suffer. Get that now. Suffering love. I came late to this understanding, but I'm convinced that it's the heart of the matter. I've come to believe that the willingness to suffer is the earnest money of love. You want to know who really, really loves you? Don't just listen to what they say. It's easy to say, I love you. Don't even look at what they do when it's easy or convenient or inexpensive. Now, you look at who loves you enough to suffer for you. Wherever in the world there is redemption and new life because there was someone there who loved enough to suffer for the one who is loved. No doubt about it in my mind. The most powerfully redemptive force in all the world is suffering love. And that's why there is something about that man on the cross and the suffering forgiving love which I see there, that gets through to me, seeks me out in all my favorite hiding place, finds my defensive armor, and finally saves me. I remember Bruce Larson telling a story about the power of suffering love. It was summertime, and the Larson family rented a houseboat for a family vacation. During that time, the older children went to spend the night with some friends, but Bruce and his wife and their elementary school son were left alone there on the houseboat. Well, something happened. One of those hurtful family things between Bruce and his wife. They became angry, and the atmosphere turned chilly. The little boy saw it and didn't like it, so he decided he'd become the social director to smooth things over. Let's go swimming, he said. It was chilly, and no one wanted to go swimming. He pulled out a game board for them to play. They were having none of it. The chill remained through a silent evening meal. The son went to bed, and Bruce got a blanket to make a place for himself on the couch, knowing that he would not be welcome in his wife's bed. The two of them heard crying, crying, coming from their son's room. They went in and found him crying as if his heart would break. And he said in a sobbing voice, I I, I don't know what to do. I tried everything I know to do. If the older kids were here, they know what to do. But I don't know what to do. I just want you two to love each other again. Suddenly the ice melted. That silly argument was forgotten. The three of them joined each other in a hug, and they all slept together in the same bed that night. Do you understand? Those two childish adults had been healed by the suffering love of one little boy. And I'm convinced that wherever in the world there's redemption, wherever in the world there's new life, is because... Someone loves enough to suffer for the one who is loved. And of course, that suffering is simply the reflection of divine love, that suffering love in the great heart of God, love which we experience supremely at the cross. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life. Many of you have heard me tell about my experience with my mother, and I'm sure I wrote one of my last books because I wanted to make sure that was in print somewhere. So my parents believed in punishment, and believe it or not, there were times when I misbehaved. My father especially believed in punishment. He had a, about a four-inch wide razor strap that he would apply rather vigorously to my legs and my bottom. And I would dance around first on one leg and then the other, saying, I won't do it anymore, I won't do it anymore. Those sessions did not leave any permanent scars, I'm sure, either physical or emotional. And they may resulted, may have resulted in some minor behavioral, mod- behavioral modification. But those sessions of punishment did not change me on the inside. Because they don't have the power to do that. It's not redemptive. Threat, coercion, punishment, 
Those are not redemptive. But there were other ways when my misbehavior was handled. There were other times when my misbehavior was handled in other ways by my mother. My mother would simply call me in, sit me down, and, and talk to me. She would tell me how much she loved me. She would tell me about her dreams for my life. She would tell me how disappointed she was in what I'd done. And sometimes she began to cry. That got to me. I mean, that got down deep to me. Because I knew my mother was suffering precisely because of her love for me. And that changed my life. I'm a different man today because of the suffering love of my mother. And what I've come to understand is that my mother's suffering love is just another way of expressing that love which is always in the great heart of God, the suffering love which we experience supremely at the cross. Listen now because I'm about to say something important. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. God's love gets to us at the cross precisely because God did not play it safe. He did not stay aloof and distant and uncaring. God loves enough to become vulnerable. He suffers with us. He suffers for us precisely because he loves us. You may have never heard that before anywhere else, but about a, a vulnerable God. But that's the heart of it. God loves enough to become vulnerable and suffers. I tell you, I can get close to a God like that. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. Paul says that's a scandal, a stumbling block, but it's the heart of the gospel. It's the only way, finally, for God to get through to us and bring us back to himself. It's the amazing when we receive that in faith, it saves us, and that's the gospel. There's a hymn that says it better than I get. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus inspires us. Let us pray. Loving Father, we don't fully understand it, and certainly we don't deserve it. But we are so very grateful for the loving life and the redeeming death of your son, Jesus the Christ. Help us now to open ourselves to you. Claim us again as your own and give us all we need to live our lives to be the loved, forgiven, redeemed sons and daughters of God. In the name of Jesus, the Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Jim.